Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Villanova English Department podcast. And this month, we've got something a little bit special and a little bit different. We will be hearing from some senior English majors from their seminar course that they have been taking with Professor Lauren Showett. And in that seminar, they have been looking at Shakespeare, at Milton, and some of their contemporaries. And the students have been reflecting on how those works speak to our world today. So we'll be hearing from... Um, Seniors Joe D'Antonio, Shivani Patel, and Talena Zamorano-Gonzalez, and they're going to be sharing some of the questions that have been raised for them, some of the things they have learned in the course, connections they have made between the texts of that time and um, contemporary media, and at the end they will be sharing with us some of the uh, project work that they themselves have done and um, some of the realizations that that project work has led them to. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. And um, here we go. The, the first voice that you're going to hear after our uh, theme song is going to be Professor Lauren Showett. This is a conversation among the seminar members of the English Department Spring 2021 Senior Seminar that studied gender, sexuality, and race in Shakespeare, Milton, and their contemporaries. Joe D'Antonio, Shivani Patel, and Talino Zamorano-Gonzalez thought about what those categories look like or what stands in for those categories in some early modern texts, particularly in four plays of Shakespeare. We focused on Macbeth, Twelfth Night, Othello, and The Tempest thought about what we seem to have carried forward as a culture from those articulations, what things that we've carried forward help us, what things that we've carried forward hurt us, and thought a little bit about what's unexpected or different or more or less liberatory in early modern versions and what we take forward, what they might offer us. We're gonna talk a little bit, the students are gonna talk a little bit about their take on some of these overall questions. And we'll also talk a bit about the individual seminar projects that they've undertaken going into some depth to pursue their own interests in these. So could each of you start by talking a bit about what looked familiar, what looked different, what you see coming forward, places that you found ideas from these plays? I think one thing that comes forth for me and I can speak on behalf of taking Dr. Showitz Milton class last semester is I think it's very intriguing and interesting to read early modern texts and texts written hundreds of years ago and see how they apply in our contemporary society today. I think there's a stigma out there that texts written hundreds of years ago don't really apply to our society today. And one thing that I encourage students who are thinking about majoring in English and, and visiting ACS classes as a member of the Department of Student Advisory Council is that don't listen to that. You know, I think there's a lot to learn and a lot that we can take from plays such as Shakespeare's plays and from Milton's Paradise Lost that really applies to the world we are living in today. And so I think to get the conversation started, that's something that I think is important for people to know. Yeah, and um, I think Joe brought up a good point, like the fact that we think it's so far from our current reality. But I really think that like after revisiting Shakespeare's text and Milton again, um, and just like examining like the main ideas, I feel like a these texts kind of work as like a template almost. Um, and I'm going to focus on like just media industries because that's something I'm really interested in. But um, 
having being like a heavy like media um person like I feel like I've seen so many of these ideas that we've read in these like renaissance um texts that I see in like very like recent um renditions like if we look at like uh, the Lion King that came out in 2019 like that was um inspired by Hamlet um and then like all like popular rom-coms like 10 things I hate about you she's the man I know they're a little far from what it's actually like but I think the fact that these things are weaved into something so common and just like so commonly known in like our cultural DNA I think that's just a perfect example of how like even though it seems so far from reality it's some it's the, the main ideas that kind of stay with like in our cultural DNA and continue to stay in it. Yeah, just to add on to Joe and Talena's points, um, one thing that was really resonant with me this semester was the yellow dig post we got the opportunity to do about the different texts. So um, for example, for Macbeth, we did Lady Macbeth compared to different types of first ladies in particular, different types of um, female figures who are powerful or with Twelfth Night, how we talked about um, different examples of you know, cross-dressing or even like transgender identities and contemporary society and things like that. I think um, we as a group really compile different ways that these topics are so relevant today and um, these kind of topics of diversity that I think that are really important to talk about, especially in an English course, I think we really got to delve into them, especially with Shakespeare and kind of discuss how they're so relevant today. So I think that having a course like this, you're really able to see the way you can kind of map out the way that things have changed in recent years. For example, with like the Tempest, we talk about, you know, ideas of colonialism, they've obviously shifted. But I think a lot of themes are still resonant today and it kind of shows you how we need to start working as a society on like tackling these ideas instead of kind of leaving them in the past. What's an example of something you thought was cool or helpful or freeing about a way that a Shakespearean play thought about one of our categories? You can also imagine what the next question is going to be. What's something horrifying and unliberating and oppressive that you found in one of the Shakespeare plays? You can answer those questions in either order. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that we talked about how like race was a topic that isn't something that was understood the way it's understood now. And um, in a way, I feel like that's sort of liberating um, because it's not like, I, I don't know, do, it's a little like complex to understand, but I kind of got the idea that it, it was both liberating, but also um, obviously oppressing. Um, like, I just think back to how we see um, race being portrayed in Othello and then race being portrayed in, in um, The Tempest. Um, I thought Othello was a really interesting text because we see um, this black man um, who has become like a hero because he's earned his way up in the uh, as a general and um he's like praised and um I don't know like that's just different from having read the tempest before and never read Othello so um being able to like go back and forth with these types of characters um to like just show two different ways of you know casting a black man in a play like this was um very interesting to me like in terms of race I mean, obviously we saw two different kinds of oppression, um, but at the end of the day, it's still there. So I think it, while it was a little bit more liberating in the fact that we like, that I never had experience to play like that, like with um, someone of color being someone who's praised and holds power to some extent. Um, and then both of them still portray this oppression, but I think that it does open doors for like different um, like portrayals of this. Cause I think of how uh, Othello was probably 
um, casted in like plays and how it's like changed over over the years and like um, I don't know like kind of what Shabani says it kind of acts as a marker to where we're at in um, society having read it so far down the line and like also like just looking at it how it was before. I think that um one thing that was liberating or one text that was liberating and also kind of restrictive was Twelfth Night for me. I think that we talked about in class how um, you see Viola kind of masquerading as um, a man and kind of going forth and making it so that she's kind of going after this woman, um, Olivia, um, and kind of creating this kind of relationship that you don't really see and how it doesn't really get demonized the way that you would expect it to. It kind of gets, in, even though in the end it's kind of restrictive in that it ends in kind of like this heteronormative kind of ending for every character with kind of Orsino ending up with Viola and things like that. I think it's also kind of liberating because of the way that you kind of have the performance of gender and the idea that if you're performing as a certain gender, if you're kind of um, having these stereotypes, how does that relate to your identity? I think like that's a really common question we have today in like contemporary society and how the idea of gender versus performance. And so those kind of topics that we talked about with Shakespeare are kind of liberatory in that you kind of see them resonant today, but at the same time, because it does end in such a way that kind of realigns, you know, back to like this heterosexual marriage kind of idea, it's kind of also restrictive. I totally agree with everything that Talena and Giovanni had mentioned. And I think I'm going to look to both of the texts that they each mentioned. I think the one that is liberatory for me, and I had a very similar point to Giovanni was in Twelfth Night, seeing how our heteronormative and contemporary and contemporary perceptions of gender, seeing how in Twelfth Night that doesn't really exist and seeing how that in a women to women or man to man relationship, nothing is degraded or nothing is seen as some or is not seen as unnatural. And I think that's something that our society is shifting more towards today. And, you know, I agree, I agree with Shivani that something that is maybe interesting is to see how a homosexual relationship is built up in Twelfth Night, but then it returns to a more heteronormative ending. And so I think that kind of maybe speaks to the society that we're living in today that, you know, as we are progressing more towards accepting homosexual relationships that, you know, we're, we are getting there, but there's still work to be done. And that in our side today, heteronormative relations are still seen as the norm. And so I, I think that's something that was both liberatory, liberatory and something that I think we still need to work on today. And I think something that I was very surprised to see and not to jump too far ahead, but that I, I'm writing about in my paper topic is to see how Shakespeare's plays enter conversations and discussions that I don't really believe that they're meant for. And, you know, one thing that I wrote about was how Shakespeare's Othello and the Tempest were used in pro-slavery and abolitionist movements. And to see how men and women who were on the pro-slavery side and even on the abolitionist side used texts that were written hundreds of years ago to support their agenda. I think it's something that prompts a conversation. I know it's something that we discussed in class, you know, to see that a man like William Shakespeare who holds such a resonance in our society and abroad and here, you know, to see how his work can be used to support political and social agendas. And I think that's something that, you know, when he was writing this hundreds of years ago, wasn't what his goal was. And so I think that's something to see how these plays can be misconstrued to endorse or deny certain positions is something that I think I or not think that I never knew coming into this class and it was interesting to learn about. Can you um, talk a bit about some of the adaptations that you came across? We first saw 
the Macbeth movie, Scotland, PA, that set Macbeth in a diner in the 70s. Um, you saw Tim Blake Nelson's film, O, about a high school basketball star. We read, you chose to read Amy Césaire's A Tempest, post-colonial late 1960s play. You chose Margaret Atwood's Hag Seed. We looked a bit at Frankenstein as a Paradise Lost adaptation. What kinds of things did you see in those adaptations? How was thinking about what those authors and playwrights had to say about the source text, like or unlike reading a critical article? How did it make you think about some of the issues? What stuck, sticks with you as interesting interpretations or possibilities any of those drew out? Um, so I really, <clears throat> I really enjoyed um, kind of visiting all these different adaptations to see like how um, these ideas were brought to life in um, a more like current form. Um, and like, um, for me, I wrote, a, I wrote an adaptation for my final, um, for my final project. So this is like something that I'm just like particularly interested in. Um, but having visit, visited adaptations and also read the text beforehand, I feel like um, we, see, we have like different understandings of the text that allow, like it allows for different understandings of the text for us to piece things together to get an even better understanding of what's under beneath the surface. Um, so let, Shakespeare constructs these characters in a way that is so three-dimensional to me. And I think that that like is what gives um, people room to make these adaptations um, and make them even more human, but kind of like tweak them in a way that is more relatable in a current sense. And so seeing how transferable these like, these like just frameworks that seem so far from today's reality um, is really helpful to like, I think further understanding each character and I guess just getting a bigger picture idea of what not only the adaptation is about, but like the actual text and what kind of messages we can pull from that. So I really enjoyed um, going, going back and forth to these um, adaptations and the text and seeing what type of similarities they had. Um, Cause I think it really opened doors for different um, possibilities. Like I, like with, when we read Paradise Lost and then we read Frankenstein, um, I, I think I missed so much um, just reading Paradise Lost and then having read Frankenstein with it, I think I had like a light bulb moment and so many times that we just kind of make comparisons and, you know, I had that same experience with Shakespeare. So um, I think they're really helpful just to see how people have digested just the storylines and the frameworks and transferred it to something that might be more familiar to the viewer. Yeah, I think I'm um, thinking about the same along the same lines of uh, Telena and kind of thinking about, um, I think for me, what was most resonant was like the movies we watched. And I think in particular watching O was really interesting because you kind of completely removed the setting of Othello and kind of base it in this um, college setting and kind of completely take away the entire creation of the society. But at the same time, what's really interesting was that you still have those same character dynamics that you see. Um, the Odin character who's the Othello character kind of has the same kind of stigma um, placed on him because being a black man, um, being the sole black man on like the basketball team and kind of having those, um, I guess he has to kind of live with that identity and how that kind of makes him get perceived in different ways is really similar to the way Othello gets seen um, being a general and how, to, how he kind of his relationship with Desdemona gets seen as something negative. So I think that it's really interesting that you could take something that has nothing to do with like, you know, like a high school or college relationship and kind of map it onto a new framework and still have the same ideas work. And I think what was really interesting about like the O movie in particular for me was that there was these like um, 
remnants of like more modern ideas of like racism and prevalent in it. Like you had the character of Odin kind of taking drugs at one point and kind of how that resembles the way that like black Americans have been treated in society and kind of like criminalized and things like that. So you're bringing in those different elements that are more relevant today in the United States and kind of mapping it onto, you know, like this late 16th century text and kind of bringing those new ideas onto it. And so I think watching different adaptations, especially like watching movies for me was really interesting to kind of see how the framework has shifted, but you kind of still have those same ideas um, relevant. I was thinking a lot about the adaptations the other day that we have had the opportunity to watch and view and read. And I think it's super interesting, like everyone said, to see a play converted into either a movie or just put into our more contemporary society. And, you know, I'm going to look to, this was my first time reading Frankenstein and my academic career, I had never read it before, which I felt like was a sin up to this point. So I am grateful that we had the opportunity to read it. And I was thinking back to a lot of our discussions about Paradise Lost and specifically Adam's asking God for a companion in Eve. And we see, we see in the story how the creature is also looking for a companion. And I was thinking how that really is something that resonates a lot today during our time in the pandemic and during our time in quarantine. You know, I oftentimes was thinking a lot about, you know, when everyone was isolated and everyone was away from the hustle and bustle of their daily lives. And as we were away from school, you know, I was thinking how I was grateful to have my family, my parents and my sister with me. And I oftentimes thought about a lot about how difficult that must've been for those who maybe live by themselves or didn't have anyone to connect with. And I think in some ways it just speaks to how as beings we are, we're social creatures of habit. We are people who like to be out and about or people who like to converse. And I think in some ways, you know, when we talk about Adam and Eve and the rational conversations they have in the garden and how labor isn't as laborious as it is today is something that induces pleasure because you're able to converse in that prelapsarian world. I always wonder, you know, after after this time that we've spent in quarantine and, and in a pandemic, you know, is there some ways that in this fallen world that we can get some of those prelapsarian values back of being in community and being in conversation with one another? And so I think to look at Paradise Lost in that way and then to read Frankenstein and look at the same toils that the teacher deals with or the, excuse me, the creature deals with, I think it's interesting to look at how that influences our time in a pandemic world today. If you were creating an anti-racist curriculum to teach students of whatever level, would you make room for either Shakespeare or Milton or would you use your energy elsewhere? I definitely would include Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare um, just produces like conversations that might be uncomfortable, but also just very much captures the, uh, just like, just the attention of people to the point where it's like, we can talk about this. This is something that, um, you know, happened in history and we can learn from this and move move forward as a society. Um, um, so I'm like looking into being a teacher down the road and like just thinking about it, I would definitely include Shakespeare, not just because it's a classic, but because it invites students and um, people, just people in general to have these conversations that, um, make you really think about like, you know, this is, this might, because it's so detached from reality, well, not reality, but today's reality, I think it's really nice to like be able to just 
talk about these issues that are still prevalent in today's society, but like in so, so long ago, because it kind of helps the students see things for like differently, if that makes sense. Like I'm trying to see like, like it's, it's detached from like your emotional state in that very moment. And um, it just opens doors for different conversations that might be helpful to use in, in everyday life. And um, I don't know if that made too much sense, but I think that it definitely just invites students to think differently. Um, and, you know, obviously like, but also being, be holding these, these things, account, people accountable for, you know, um, certain views and stuff like that, but also like just being able to have these conversations um, through these like characters that Shakespeare produces, or um, I guess Milton too. Um, like what kind of, what do these things mean? It also brings like this like ethical conversation and like, it just brings about so many conversations that um, I feel like are very essential if you're studying um, anti-racism. So um, I definitely would include Shakespeare. Yes, I'm gonna agree with a lot of the points that Shivani and Talina says. I think initially, if I was putting an anti-racial curriculum together, I would definitely include both Milton and Shakespeare. And I think the reason why I would include it is to answer the white supremacy question before this. I think stemming off of what Shivani said, I think for those who fear or for those who utilize Shakespeare's plays and then Milton's works like Paradise Lost for a white supremacy agenda, I think it's them taking it out of context. And I think what we and specifically looking at, I looked a lot at James Shapiro's book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. And I think you see that men and women who used Shakespeare's plays to endorse slavery or to push forth an agenda for anti-immigration laws based off of that men and women from non-European countries coming into the United States would contaminate the greatest country in the world. I think that's taking the goal of Shakespeare's plays and of Milton's works out of context and using it and trying to utilize two seminal authors in, in literature who are well known and that people, whether they studied it in school or just saw the plays in the community would know in that way is not doing them justice. And one line that I looked to was in a, one of the readings that we had to do for the class in James Shapiro's chapter 1916 immigration. One, someone mentioned that the goal of Shakespeare is to liberate the imprisoned imagination of mankind from the fetters of brute force and ignorance. And I think looking to what Talena was saying, I think that speaks to what the goal of the plays are. The plays are not meant in any way to endorse one opinion or another, but that they're meant to kind, they're meant to get rid of the whole concept that ignorance is bliss, that, you know, we need to have these conversations. And it's important for us, especially in the society we're living in today to read plays like Othello and talk about race in this country and to read epic poems like Paradise Lost to look at, you know, what life was like in a pre-lapsarian world and then, you know, how life is in a fallen world. And so I agree with what my classmates have said. And, you know, I think that it is important for us to read these plays and that for those who try to construe it and use it for a, an agenda is taken out of context. As some of you mentioned, you did some visual mashups where you looked at images and textual coverage and media clips where you explored ways that Lady Macbeth 
comes up as a figure when we now represent powerful women, especially women who achieve their positions because of their proximity to powerful men, example one. You did a collage of ways to think about sex and gender difference in relation to class difference in Twelfth Night and in other cultures. And you did a collage of ways that Othello played into the O.J. Simpson coverage. Can you talk about a few things there that you think would interest or surprise people listening to this podcast that you discovered? Um, so having been like a little unfamiliar with the specifics of the O.J. Simpson case, I was extremely shocked to see how similar um, it was to Othello. Um, so some of the similarities I remember, it was just kind of like they were both extremely praised, respected um, for their achievements. Um, and, you know, they were able to like break through these racial limitations. Um, but also when it comes specifically to a case, like they were both abusive to their partners. They both committed murder out of love, which is like just so specific um, that I was just like really caught there. Like, OK, um, I remember I, I looked at like uh, like transcripts of like um conversations with OJ Simpson and then I like compared it to like what Othello had said um pertaining to the murder of his uh wife and it was just so insanely like just like very similar um and um and I feel like both of them almost to some sense like deny their fall from grace um so it just left me with the question of like could OJ Simpson's actions been inspired by Othello um could um and like if it if it were like what does that mean for the negative influence that Shakespeare could have on people and um like like you know Shakespeare has a lot of plays where discusses topics like uh jealousy or like hatred or insanity violence um and so like what does that do on people on society um you know even though it fosters good conversation like is there something bad that can come from it and so and like, what are the chances that like these ideas have stemmed from like Shakespeare and inspi Shakespeare inspired things, um, things that we've been like taught that have been inspired by Shakespeare frameworks. Um, so yeah, like it just opened so many doors to new questions that I guess I never really will have an answer to. But I think that it's so essential that like we make these like connections so that you know there's new like ways of thinking of, you know, something like the O.J. Simpson case where it was like for so long unresolved. Um, so it was, it really just like, I was just like shocked to see how similar um, the two were. And I, you know, to this day I have, I have questions. So um, it was very, very helpful to take a look at that and just make the connections. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed in particular doing the mashup for Macbeth and kind of talking about um, Lady Macbeth in reference to different presidential first ladies in particular. I think one thing that was really interesting to me was to find out that like, you know, you have these presidential power couples that people kind of like idolize and kind of see as kind of the the essential thing of what a couple should be. But for women in particular, kind of like looking through like the language getting used to talk about these women, you kind of see how, you know, their idea, people's idea of womanhood kind of gets projected onto these first ladies and kind of like what their idea of the ideal idea of um, like feminine beauty gets projected onto these women. And then when women kind of like seize power, kind of have you know, kind of sway over their husbands, like Hillary Clinton in particular, you kind of see the way people see her as, you know, too, too caustic or too powerful over her husband. And even though her husband is the one making the decision at the end of the day, people see the woman or for Hillary Clinton kind of see her as like the villain in the story. 
kind of the way that Lady Macbeth, you kind of have to look at it so that is Lady Macbeth the one that was kind of swaying Macbeth towards a certain resolution or was it Macbeth making his own decisions? And you kind of don't know the same way that people don't know what goes on behind closed doors with these presidential couples, except for women in particular kind of have these traditional roles of like femininity and kind of these traditional gender roles getting shifted because they're in power with their husbands. And like even today, like with Michelle Obama, I think it was interesting to look at the way because she um, as a black woman kind of got treated even more differently than like Hillary Clinton did and the way that people kind of villainized her for even showing her shoulders in pictures, like things like that was, were just really surprising and how like femininity itself gets construed as something very singular, the way that people see it. So when you have these kind of different models or like these powerful women kind of trying to, you know, achieve success themselves, people automatically villainize them the way they did with Lady Macbeth, which is just kind of shocking. Well, it was super interesting for me in doing the yellow dig assignments was I think it supports something that all three of us today have talked about and looking to how Shakespeare's plays and even older books and plays and pieces, how they relate to the society we're living in today, or maybe just happened a couple of years ago. And I think the one that really stuck out to me was our yellow dig assignment on Othello and the O.J. Simpson case, because I think hands down still one of my favorite Netflix documents I've watched so far was the FX one on OJ versus the people. And I think I totally agree with what Talena is saying, because it's something that I was thinking about when working on my final project was, you know, when you look at the overall themes of the plays, I guess one theme that you can look at in Othello is the consequence of unfettered passion and love and how, what consequences that can stem from that. And so I think it's interesting to explore how you look at the OJ case, and then you look at ultimately what transpires in Othello and how he is, he falls victim to an evil plan by Iago and then how that spirals into the death of innocent men and women who really don't deserve to die in, in the tragic ending. And so I think it's interesting to see, you know, how can or does the play's theme in, in any way contribute to how people view various actions and how, you know, does a play based on unfettered passion and love, does that maybe influence how people make decisions or how people think about their lives? And, and I, I think it's interesting to look at this case and the OJ case and the various outcomes that they have. Great. In the next segment of the podcast, can I ask each of you to briefly talk about how you developed your final project? What questions led you to choose, you know, say, what, say what you're working on, what made you want to work on it and tell us a little bit about what you've discovered. I'm doing my final project, as I mentioned earlier on how, or the title of the piece is Othello and the Tempest and Antebellum America and looking how specifically Shakespeare's plays Othello and the Tempest contribute to the pro-slavery and abolitionist dialogues in the late 1800s. And one scene that really helped me come up with the idea for the pieces. We read, a, I'm drawing a blank on the article's name, but in our discussion of Macbeth, we read a secondary article that talked about in Macbeth when he comes to face with Banquo's ghost and how during that time when he is you know, overcome with emotion at that point, how both the North and the South used that to support how the North was at guilt for slavery or that the South was guilty for for slavery. And I think at that point is when I really started to think about the idea of how Shakespeare's plays were used in a s sphere where they 
weren't meant for and how really, you know, I think the discussions that we had throughout the semester after reading Othello and The Tempest was what role do Shakespeare's plays play in our contemporary society and how politicians and people in the social sphere quote them to support and endorse their opinions. And so that's how I came uh, to write my piece. And it's been super interesting to read Shapiro's Shakespeare in a divided America and look at other secondary articles looking into how in the role that, you know, Shakespeare's plays and John Milton's works and even the Bible, how those books are quoted to for people to support their opinion and to put down their opposers. And so it's been super interesting so far. Yeah, I did my project on um, the way that Prospero in The Tempest acts as judge, jury, and executioner. And it kind of was led to this topic because um, seeing the media in the recent months, obviously the trial going on for the murder of George Floyd and kind of seeing the way that um, like different modes of authority, especially with police power have been, you know, kind of horrible in recent years and the way that police power has transformed as something that's um, overbearing and kind of people, they're kind of, they've stepped away from their role as protectors and kind of turned into these um, executors of authority and how they kind of act as judge jury and executioner when it comes to different murders, especially of people of color. So kind of like taking those ideas into account, I started mapping that onto the way we view from post-colonial view, um, The Tempest and Césaire's adaptation of it, A Tempest, and kind of seeing how different, um, you can look at different levels of authority that Prospero undertakes and the different models that he uses for his power. Um, I kind of talked about the way that territory works for him and kind of how that's reminiscent of colonialism. I also discussed how he kind of has supernatural authority as well as his authority. I think his ultimate authority prospers in both works, um, Césaire and Shakespeare's comes from language and the way that he uses language to kind of shape the way he um, treats other characters, especially with um, Caliban and Ariel. And so I wanted to look at the way that that kind of resembles um, the way that police function in the United States today and the way that, you know, like Prospero's cloak kind of resembles the way that police officers have this uniform to resemble their authority or to mark them as a symbol of authority. And the way that um, certain individuals like Caliban can't fight back, you know, whether through language or through actions otherwise against these modes of authority. And so I kind of also discussed how Césaire kind of by making an explicit slave relationship or master-slave relationship in his adaptation of The Tempest kind of shifted so you give Caliban more agency and kind of how that resembles the way that, you know, how people today are kind of fighting back and using like anti-racist techniques to kind of combat police brutality and violence and how, for me, I mapped it onto the Black Lives Matter movement and the way that, you know, these individuals are stepping up and taking, um, kind of taking the steps to combat like systemic racism and institutional inequality and the way that Caliban in that adaptation that Césaire does kind of resembles that same figure who's kind of fighting for his rights and kind of motivating like black consciousness and kind of taking back his agency for himself. And so the way that I kind of just want to map on the different ways that you can look to um, Shakespeare and Césaire's works as case studies for kind of understanding why authority today may be the way it is and different ways to combat that authority in contemporary society. Um, so I took a little bit uh, of a more creative route. Um, I decided to write an adaptation um, of The Tempest. I was really inspired by Margaret Atwood's uh, Hackseed because um, even when just reading The Tempest, I was very interested to see how many prisons there were um, like like literal and like um, just like prisons, like not, not actual prisons, but like just different ways of how people were imprisoned in their ways or, or actually in prison. Um, I just thought it was very interesting. Um, so when I read Hagseed, it like addressed my question 
um, very, just very, very clearly and very directly. Um, and, um, you know, I started thinking about how, you know, how similar um, Atwood's uh, attempt was to my idea of how would this work in a children children's immigrant detention camp um, and how like this type, these, these feelings of being imprisoned um, kind of transferred to this situation. Um, and I took, I, I took like a more like um, current sense of, uh, like I went like more current with my um, adaptation. Like I, I incorporated the COVID-19 pandemic. I've, I, I incorporated like the actual US Customs and Border Protection, um, uh, Commissioner John Sanders. Um, and I just, in general, I think that having written two small analytical papers in the semester and then like not ending off with adaptation, um, just to kind of allowed me to see firsthand how transferable these like frameworks are. Uh, but also um, it was just like nice to be able to, instead of looking from the outside in, um, like helpful to not, to not look from the outside in, and I guess like just kind of work from the inside out. Um, it was just very interesting to, to like kind of put my myself in the shoes of um, characters like Caliban or Ariel, uh, which Ariel is the main focus of my um, paper. Um, but just like, yeah, looking in, uh, looking, coming from inward out um, was just something that I've never like done. And I think that it offered um, just like a more intimate understanding of who these characters are as a person, um, because I really have to, in, in order to like, to feel like I've accurately and like truly portrayed them. Um, and so, yeah, so just some more context on my actual adaptation. Um, I, like I said, I chose to do like a more literal realism style. Um, and uh, I focused on Ariel because I was just very interested with Ariel to begin with. Um, I mean, before my main focus, uh, like my main focus of interest was just basically like um, Ariel's like gender and how it's like kind of like just ambiguous in the text. But here I focus more on like the idea of imprisonment around Ariel because I think that his relationship with Prospero was so interesting to me. Um, but I think it also really makes sense with just how dispassionate um, people are at the resignation of the US, like just 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 dispassionate towards like the US uh, cu customs and uh, protection. So uh, border protection, I mean. And so, yeah, I just really, um, I mean, I had fun with it, um, but it was also very much like, just, it was it was just interesting to see how I could process this over to another, um, just like, I guess, framework and um, see how applicable it is, but also how much I could learn from it. So yeah, that's what I did for mine. And um, yeah, doing a creative uh, adaptation was something that I've never done before. So I've learned a lot. That's our show. Thank you for being with us again this month. And I want to say thank you again to Lauren Showitt and her students for sharing their work with us. And we will see you next month.